Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Now let's turn to John chapter 9 and stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and say, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we come to this passage that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Soften our hearts to receive this word to the praise and glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. There was a woman who once attended this church for a while, never became a member. Um, She insisted to me many times that it was possible to know sins you had committed by which specific, uh, to know sins you had committed by what specific ailment you had. She had some literature course, shared it with me, attempting to prove the case. I remember looking up Crohn's disease, had a vested interest in that one. And though I don't remember the specific sin, it mentioned in connection with Crohn's disease, guess what? I had at some point in my life committed the sin it mentioned, right? I had broken that command. And so, woo, look at there. Um, in fact, it, it's highly likely that I could affirm everything in the book because I had probably broken every one of God's commands at some point. So the book was right, wasn't it? If you, if you hated somebody, you are going to get a cold. If you coveted something, you, you will have diseased eyes. If you embezzled money, you would have stomach cancer. It was all very ridiculous like this, given the, given the frequency of illness in this world and the frequency of sin, right? This pinpointing of diseases according to specific sins committed, is, it's a fool's errand unless the committing of the sin caused one to be exposed to illness. I mean, that can happen. You can commit sins, sexually transmitted diseases. You can get, commit sins and you're going to get a specific disease, that corresponds to that sin. I mean, that can happen, but to get down into the details of every disease and corresponding to one sin and focusing on repenting for that sin is whacked. That there is a connection between sin and bodily ailments cannot be doubted. That cannot be doubted. When sin entered the world through Adam, the world was broken. Sin and death and disease corresponding to that death led to death entering 
by, by disease entering. By Adam's sin, illness thrived in a fallen world. And we have already looked at John 5. Remember the man who desired to be placed in that pool in Bethesda, or Bethesda so that he could um, be healed of his disease. It appears he was a paraplegic. At the end of it all, after the man has been healed by Jesus and he's, he's being harassed by the Pharisees for being healed on the Sabbath, Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. On that verse, Calvin says these rather hard words, but words we should take to heart. He says, If God does not succeed in doing us good by the stripes with which he gently chastises us, as the kindest father would chastise his tender and delicate children, He is constrained to assume a new character and a character which, so to speak, is not natural to him. He therefore seizes the whip to subdue our obstinacy as he threatens in the law. And indeed, throughout the scriptures, passages of the same kind are to be found. Thus, when we are increasingly pressed down by new afflictions, we ought to trace this to our obstinacy. For not only do we resemble restive horses and mules, but we are like wild beasts that cannot be tamed. There is no reason to wonder, therefore, if God makes use of severe punishment to bruise us, as it were, by mallets, when moderate punishment is of no avail. For it is proper that they who will not endure to be corrected should be bruised by strokes. In short, the use of punishment is to render us more Cautious for the future. If after first and second strokes we maintain obstinate hardness of heart, he will strike us seven times more severely. If after having showed signs of repentance for a time, we immediately return to our natural disposition, he chastises more sharply this levity which proves us to be forgetful and which is full of sloth. Right? So in Adam, there is sin, and that sin corresponds to disease, and God uses those afflictions that, that hit our bodies right, in order to, to discipline us like a good father. He wants you not to be obstinate in, your, in, in rebellion against him, but he wants to move you to depend and trust upon him. So in Calvin's mind, the connection between that man's sin and his illness is clear, and the affliction is a chastisement from the Lord for our obstinate return to some sin. And it being a chastisement from the Lord is meant for our good, to render us more cautious for the future, he says. Chastisement of the Lord that fall on us for our own personal sins are meant to head us off from sin in the future. Those are hard words to swallow, right? For some of you who are afflicted, But do not forget that the the chastisement of the Lord is his kindness to you, right? Both in that it shows you to be a son of the Father and it proves his desire for you to be mature in him. Having said all that now, I, I must say this. The connection between sin and illness is often indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. It does not happen outside the will of God, but it is not the result of some specific sin committed. Right? Don't play that game of, of uh, taking your disease to a book that's going to tell you what sin you've committed. You already know you've committed that sin. You don't need a book to tell you. Right? And so, but, but there are times when 
it, it, it happens by the will of God, but it's not as a result from some specific sin committed. That is proven in this passage this morning. There are purposes for afflictions and illnesses in men as providentially given to them by God beyond chastisement and heading off of sin. Sometimes God afflicts not because of the sin of the parents or the sin of the person, but because he intends to show his power and glory in the afflicted person and in their healing. So just to summarize then, when it comes to sin and illness, we, make, uh, we can make these er- errors, and this is, this is, I'm following Calvin in this. We can make these errors when it comes to sin and illness. We are much more willing to read the afflictions of others as an indication of their sin than we are to do the same with ourselves, right? We see other people afflicted and we like, man, what did, what did they do? You know, what was, what's their background like? Um, but we won't do that with ourselves. Or we're like, we would never, you know, we've repented of all those sins and, you know, that's, that's gone and, and uh, we won't do that same sort of examination of ourselves. That's pride. Second, we can be too severe in judging the afflictions of others and giving ourselves a pass. We make judgments about other people's afflictions, give ourselves a pass. Third, we can be too wooden in our interpretation of afflictions. All of us commit terrible sins, and generally speaking, all affliction is the result of sin, whether Adam's, mine, or someone else's. Some commit terrible sins and never see affliction in this life, only in the next. Some commit terrible sins and see affliction so that they might be turned away from future sins. Sometimes affliction comes because a person is righteous, like Job. Job got it because, because he was righteous and, and being tested. Those afflictions of Job were meant to, to show that, do what you want, Job will not forsake me. And then there are afflictions like the man born blind. And we will see why he was afflicted as we walk through the passage. So Jesus is passing by. He notices a man blind from birth. And that gets Jesus' men thinking about that man's affliction. They have questions going through their head like I addressed already. They want to know the cause of this man's blindness. So assuming it was because of a specific sin, they ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, it's a strange question, isn't it? He was born blind, and so this, the sin of that, that man would have had to have occurred while he was in the womb, right, to receive that affliction. Um, question makes sense in regard to his parents, but it's a, it's a stretch to think that they believe this man must have sinned while in his mother's womb. Well, the Pharisees had a strange doctrine you may not know about. The Pharisees believed and taught something that very much sounds like a form of Buddhism. They believed that souls transmigrated from one body into another. Yes. So this man's blindness would have been the result of the sin of some other man had committed before him. And God was punishing the blind man because that soul had transmigrated into his body. That's what's at the base of this. 
This view these followers of Christ may have picked up, obviously not from Scripture, but from the Greek philosopher Pythagoras, who taught it. This concept is known as metempsychosis. The Pharisees taught that the souls of the notoriously wicked would be immediately punished, right? They just went to hell. But the souls of those who had committed lesser sins would transmigrate to other bodies and there be punished for their lesser sins. So that is the way that their question could make sense. They thought that his parents had sinned and, um, and so he was afflicted with blindness or that he had received the soul of some other man who had committed sins which God was punishing through that man's blindness. This was error. <laughs> There is nothing in Scripture other than some statements of the Pharisees, which indicate this might be what they were thinking, that teaches the transmigration of souls. Each man is uniquely created body, is a uniquely created person, body and soul, fashioned by God. And each man will be judged according to his own sin, and immediately upon death the soul goes where? Not into another body but into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the question betrays some of the leaven of the Pharisees having gotten into the heads of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus answers the man saying, it is neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Jesus is telling them that they are wrong to conclude that this man sinned or that his parents sinned and that this affliction is because of some committed sin. The cause of this blindness was not sin. Rather, he explains, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed through him. Just wait and see. One thing we should conclude from that is this. When we don't know why affliction has come upon somebody, we should not speculate to come up with a reason. God knows, and we are finite creatures with vastly limited knowledge. Perhaps God is keeping this person from grave sins and so has taken away his health. Perhaps God is afflicting them for ongoing sins. Perhaps it has nothing to do with sin, but it's so that God may come along and and show his power in that person's faithfulness or show his power even in that person's healing. Notice that Jesus uses the plural works. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think it's plural because he showed himself working in this man's body both by the affliction and then in the healing in the affliction, right? We're reminded to fear God through the initial work and we are awed by God in the miraculous healing. One way or the other, the glory of God was manifested in this man's life, both in affliction and in mercy. Jesus then makes the statement about his work. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as his day, night is coming when no one can work. Very simply put, Jesus knew his time to do such works of healing was short. In just months, he would be atoning for the sins of the world on the cross and his physical presence to do miracles such as he was about to do, would come to an end. The, apostle would, the apostles would do such works, right? And miracles, uh, of course, still happen through the Holy Spirit today. 
But Jesus had limited time. There would be light in the world while he was there, and then the night would come. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's simply using an analogy. We work during the day, rest at night. His three years of doing his father's work was his day. His rest was coming. The light was about to shine forth in the healing of this man born blind, verses 6 and 7. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Jesus doesn't say a word or just touch the man's eyes with his hand. But this time he, he uses means. He makes medicine. Right? He spits on the ground makes some mud, applies it to the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash in a probably conveniently located pool. Perhaps Jesus was testing this man to see if he would be like Naaman, right, who refused to do the simple, uh, the simple thing of washing himself in the Jordan seven times to be healed of his leprosy. Uh, The man was commanded to go somewhere, though blind and wash, and he does so. And by God's grace, he saw for the first time. It's not that his eyesight was restored. This man is seeing for the very first time. He comes back to Jesus, a much easier journey, I would imagine. And he sees Everyone around him, his neighbors, those who knew him to be a beggar. The whole place is talking about him. Some thought he was the man that used to be blind, some not. And he's in the middle of all this saying, it was me, I'm the man. I'm the one, I was blind and now I see. I'm the one. How then were your eyes open, they ask. And he gives them the play-by-play. Jesus made clay, he anointed my eyes, said go wash, and I did, and now I see. And they want to know where Jesus went, um, but Jesus leaves. They want to know where he went, but the man doesn't know. It seems that the man returned to where Jesus had healed him, but Jesus had already taken off. And now those wicked Pharisees, those wicked Pharisees, not content to leave anything alone and not content to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, send their men to the place where the formerly blind man had returned. And they drag him away to the Pharisees. It seems even before the court, the the whole Sanhedrin. And we learn this tidbit not mentioned before. What day is it? It's the Sabbath day. It's the Sabbath day when Jesus did this healing. Now remember John 5, again, the man healed at Bethesda. The Pharisees had already been enraged by Jesus' supposed breaking of the Sabbath. And Jesus had told that man to do what? To pick up his pallet and walk. And the Pharisees had reminded this man who had been restricted to that pallet for 38 straight years that he was breaking the Sabbath by picking up the pallet. I mean, the Pharisees, like many legalists and many self-righteous busybodies today, were masters of missing the point. And applying their principles to the ninth degree, I mean to the nth degree. They begin to interrogate the man. How did you receive your sight? And the man goes through the actions again. Clay, mud, washing, 
sight. And as we might expect, the small-hearted Pharisees launch into their contextless ravings, rantings. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. We've been through this before. The Pharisees denied that works of mercy like healing were an acceptable part of Sabbath keeping. They were wrong. They didn't know the scriptures. And they were, well, they knew them, but they didn't believe them. And they were, as we know from the conclusion of the passage, blind. Those that these are the works of God that are being displayed, they could not see. Some others were saying, perhaps including Nicodemus, insisting that something was different about this man. Sinners aren't known for doing such works. He must be a man of God. And they divide between those willing to condemn him and those wondering if he's from God. So turning again to the man, they ask the man what he thought about Jesus. Do you think they want to know what he really thinks about Jesus? Do you think they will take what he says and factor it into their deliberation? Hardly. They want him to affirm their opinion of Jesus. Very simply says, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. In other words, he flatly contradicts them. They said, this man is not from God. The healed man says he is a prophet, which is to say he is from God. What boldness. I mean, he's just been healed. He's seeing for the first time in his life what awe that would have been. And God has immediately thrust him into this war between his son and the Pharisees. He's right in the thick of the battle. He doesn't overstate himself. He doesn't try to navigate a path with the Pharisees by many words. He simply states a truth that would flatly contradict what the Pharisees had been saying. He's a prophet. And so how does it go with the Pharisees from there? From petty to extremely petty. Before they had wanted to know how he received his sight. Now what they do when they can't get the man to move away from his position, they begin saying... He wasn't really born blind. You weren't born blind. You weren't blind. Prove it. That he wasn't blind at any time, but had been faking it, and so Jesus had not done a miracle. This is a sad tactic that we all know much about. Right? We, we, uh, when you're losing an argument, we're happy to lose our logic so we can make our next statement. Right? We don't care if we contradict everything we've said up to that point. We'll just launch out in a new direction. They deny the healing now, and they go get his parents now to get their input on this situation. Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? The parents. The parents respond, yep, he's their son. He was born blind, but how he sees... We have no clue. Or who opened his eyes, we really don't know. Um, why don't you ask him? He's of age, right? He can, he can testify with authority. Ask him. Punt. 
then we learn about what motivated their response. In a sense, that this is a punt to their son. Go ask him. He's of age. Why did they punt? Because they were afraid of the Jews, it says. They were afraid of these Pharisees. They were afraid because the Pharisees were wicked men who would do anything to maintain their appearance as religious authorities. They were hypocrites who said to do this and would not do it themselves. Right? They laid heavy burdens on the people, and this is why they were afraid of them. This man's parents had seen their abuse of power, and they were afraid. And they were afraid because the Pharisees had put in place an official policy. If anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. If anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, they were to be put out of the church. This was excommunication. But an excommunication that was not lawful. Excommunication was only to be given to those who had, had sin proven against them and remain unrepentant. The Pharisees were excommunicating in direct opposition to the very purpose of God in sending the Son. Faith in the Son of God is that which should bring somebody into fellowship with the church. Faith in the Son of God, which is, is the doorway to the household of God, was for the Pharisees a reason to cast him out. Right is wrong and wrong is right. They excommunicated not in the in the face of sin and rebellion, but they excommunicated when they observed faith in Christ. It's very similar to, to the Roman Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation. And let it be remembered their doctrine hasn't changed. They excommunicated and pro pronounced damnation on those who hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And they killed people for believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That statement by the Roman Catholic Church is to excommunicate all the Christians outside of their doors. This is to excommunicate the righteous and not the unrepentant sinners after they followed proper procedure. The Pharisees were dead set on the impurity of the church. Now the Pharisees bring the man before them a second time and they pronounce their doctrine. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. There's their confession. In other words, here's your opportunity to do what is right and confess our doctrines. Say that Jesus is not a prophet, not of God, not the Messiah. Hold our confession. Jesus is a sinner. He may claim to be from heaven, one with his father, bread of heaven, right? But, but it's not true. He's a sinner. They want this man to blaspheme God. That's how you get into the synagogue. The man humbly responds. I mean, again, it's just humble, simple. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. <laughs> One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. He doesn't have any knowledge of what Jesus is in regard to sin. But he does know very clearly that in a, a few minutes ago he was blind and now he can see. He does know that Jesus healed him. He does see the, the miracle. 
The Pharisees must now come at the man a different way. He would not affirm their doctrine, so now they will pick at the way the supposed miracle was performed. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? On this verse, Ryle writes, Let it be noted that faith only looks to the result and does not trouble itself about the manner in which it was brought about. Unbelief, on the contrary, refuses to look at the result and excuses itself by raising difficulties about the manner. What I know is is this, said the man healed, I was blind and now I see. The Pharisees refuse to see with their eyes the miracle that has occurred before them and so they will object to the way it was done. Spit made of mud. I mean, that's unclean. That's vile. That's, that's the improper method of miraculous healing. You can almost hear them saying things like that. The man responds, and even though he is still reveling in his eyesight, he is starting to get irritated with this examination. He says in response, they're asking about the manner of his healing. I told you already, and you did not listen. And here's where it gets interesting. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Boom. Right? That's a drop the mic moment, if there ever was one. Now that sets them off. And this, they spew out anger um, from their proud hearts. Scripture just puts it very simply, they reviled him. Why do they revile this man? Because he is an ignorant fool and they will not be questioned by him. That was not how this was going to go down. Disciples of Jesus, they had made clear, were not welcome in the synagogue. And here is this man questioning their motives, even or especially in a sarcastic way. And then the Pharisees let loose. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. That, dear brothers and sisters, is their confession. This man can have Jesus, but they will have Moses. But as we know from last week's passage, Jesus has authority over Moses. Before Abraham, I am. In fact, Moses did what? Moses followed Jesus. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. They followed Christ. Moses Moses did. How many times up to this point has Jesus taught them that he is from the Father, that he is from heaven, that he has come to save sinners, that he is God? It's continuous. All of chapter 8, which we slowly went through, is, is, just to, is Jesus testifying to who he was. And the Pharisees will not have it. They will make the tragic error, the error that Jews still make to this day, of choosing Moses over Jesus. 
They will not even hear Moses' words when he taught them that there would be a prophet who would come after him. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. They don't even listen to Moses. Remember what the people say after Jesus feeds them bread and fish? They end by saying this, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Those people are remembering, at least some of them, what Moses taught and concluding that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy of Moses. The Pharisees will not have it. So in rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting the very authority of the one they claim is their authority. Every true disciple of Moses must necessarily be a disciple of Jesus. And yet if we turned in our Bibles over to a letter written by a Pharisee who came to Christ... Remember, the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Romans, we read of the Apostle being brokenhearted about the rejection of the Jews. He says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end, the goal, the fulfillment of the law of, for righteousness to everyone who believes. They did not subject, subject themselves to the righteousness of, of God, to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. They should know where Jesus is from, because Jesus has taught them. And other prophets, all of their prophets essentially, have taught them about Jesus Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah have testified about Jesus, but they choose self-righteousness over the righteousness of Christ that comes to a man on the basis of faith. From there, the man pushes the sword in even deeper. He says, well, here's an amazing thing. I just love that statement. He's scratching his head. He's like, well... Here's an amazing thing. That you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Proverbs 15, 29. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of, big beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What a great testimony from this man. What boldness. And he's still ignorant of Christ as his Savior. He doesn't know that. That's the next section, and we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. He doesn't know it, but he knows enough to make this confession. He's saying that this miracle testifies to the fact that Jesus is not some demon or some faker, but that he is from God. And did you notice the word, what word the man used for those who are not self-righteous sinners? He says they are God-fearing. God-fearing. The Pharisees are now done with this man teaching them. They will not listen to him. They are done with him. And they excommunicate this man without any procedure. 
They excommunicate this man because of his emerging faith. And their excommunication is announced with condemnation and certainly not with any compassion toward this man. They are done with him. They say, you were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us? I believe their first statement is a reference to his blindness being proof that the soul he had received was a wicked one. So essentially they are using their strange unbiblical knowledge to read his former, to read his former blindness as proof of his current wickedness. And they put him out. Most commentators say this means more than they just, you know, asked him to leave the room but that it was a formal excommunication that, that uh, would have been preceded by a vote of the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin. They hastily brought this to pass and excommunicated this man upon a first examination. And I'll close with Calvin's comment on this text. Listen to what he says. This undeserved censure ought to instruct us to be exceedingly cautious not always to estimate the sins of any person by the chastisements of God. For as we have already seen, God has various ends to accomplish by inflicting calamities on men. But not only do those hypocrites insult the wretched man, they likewise reject disdainfully his warnings, though they are holy and good, as indeed it very frequently happens that one cannot endure to be taught by him whom he despises. Now since we ought always to hear God, by whomsoever he may talk to us, let us learn not to despise any man that God may find us always mild and submissive, even though he employ a person altogether mean and despicable to instruct us. For there is not a more dangerous plague than when pride stops our ears so that we do not humble ourselves to hear those who warn us for our profit. And it frequently happens that God purposely selects vile, and worthless persons to instruct and warn us in order to subdue our pride. That's what God was doing that day, trying to subdue the pride of the Pharisees. So he put this beggar before them, throwing daggers of truth. Those Pharisees had heard the truth that day from this man Jesus healed. They ought to have listened. They ought to have listened. Next time, we'll, we'll see that Jesus does what Jesus does with this man after he is cast out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. We will see, as we did in our text today, that there is a worse blindness than physical blindness. That's the blindness of unbelief. That is the worst blindness. And we'll see in that next section that though he was excommunicated from the synagogue, he was made a member of Christ's church. And that's glorious.